0: In Pastor Mark's series through the book of Exodus, we have come to Exodus chapter 20, which is where the Ten Commandments are first recorded. Israel has just been delivered from Egypt, and the Lord is going to give to them ten words, ten commands that instruct them how they are to live before him, how they are are to worship the one true and living God. But that is in the face of the pantheon of gods that existed in Egypt. And what we are going to read this morning, I believe, has direct application to the fact that in Egypt there were a multitude of gods, and in fact those gods were believed to embody themselves in animals and um, often idols of some sort of animal figure were made and the gods were worshiped through those animal idols. For example, I'm just going to give you a few. Um, the god Bastet, the, the animal, the cat was sacred to the god Bastet and there were sometimes um, uh, idols made in a figure of a cat. Or the god Thoth, the ibis, and the baboon were sacred to the god Thoth, or the god Sobek and Ra, the crocodile, the god Set, the fish, um, the god Harris, the mongoose, shrew, and birds, the god Anubis, dogs and jackals, the god Atom, serpents and eels, the god Kepara, beetles, the god Apis, bulls, god pro, uh, prohibits worshiping idols in any form in the section that we are going to read today. And we might think that that was unnecessary, but if you know the history of Israel, you'll know. It was very shortly after receiving such commands that they are already breaking them. Let's read then, if, you're out, if you have a copy of scriptures from the back table, Exodus chapter 20. It's, it's um, page 61, if you have that copy, or Exodus chapter 20 in your own copy. We will will be reading verses one through six. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me, and keep my commandments. May the Lord bless his word.
1: Amen. Well, last week we did begin a series of sermons on the Ten Commandments and we began where we should have began, which is looking at the very first commandment. And one question that I did not answer last week that I probably should have answered is why is the first commandment first? Why does God begin these ten words to Israel with the reality that, and the command that you shall have no other gods before me? And I want to answer that question now before we get into the second commandment. I think the answer is quite obvious that The reason is because when you break the first commandment, that leads to the breaking of all the other ones. To break the first commandment, or rather to keep the first commandment, to have God and God alone as the exclusive object of your loyalty and devotion, means that you are going to listen to him and desire to do what he tells you to do. In fact, the other commandments are really expressions of breaking the first, In fact, God really wouldn't have to give the other nine if people kept the first one. If they did not put other gods before God, there would be no need to give the other commands. So, how does breaking the first serve as a gateway to breaking the others? Let me give you a few examples. First of all, the second commandment, the one we're considering this morning as we're going to see, it deals with worshiping God in a way that does not reflect who He truly is. We are not to worship God in a way that does not reflect who He truly is. But why are we tempted to do this? Well, because we have a different God, namely the idol of control. See, a God that we carve is a God we control. A God we make is a God we can remake. And so what is driving the second commandment is God being God alone and us not being able to manipulate him. So why are we tempted to do this? Because we love control. We like to be in control. And the God we create is the God we think will give us what we want. Hence why Larry gave us that very helpful list of the gods of Egypt. Why were they represented that way? Because this is what this God will do for us if we do this for him. Jump forward to the sixth commandment, do not murder. What makes a person angry? What makes a person murderous? Is it not often the idol of comfort? Someone has angered you? By attacking an idol in your life or threatening something you love, and you reach the point where you desire to, hear, to, to to harm someone because you believe their harm will bring about your happiness. How about the seventh commandment? Do not commit adultery. What leads to sexual sin? Well, it's usually an idol of pleasure. We need pleasure or emotional fulfillment to be happy, even if it means betraying commitments to get it. How about the eighth commandment? Don't steal. What leads to theft? Is it not often the idol of money and stuff? We need money, we need stuff to be happy, so we'll get it even if it means cheating others. What about the ninth commandment? Why do we bear false witness? Why do we tell lies? Why do we gossip? Because we believe it will benefit us. We are often bowing to the idol of approval. I want people to like me. We love what a lie brings, more than what the truth brings. We exaggerate our accomplishments and minimize our failures and exaggerate others' vices and minimize their virtues because we want to think highly of of ourselves and we want others to think highly of us. So you see, idols are driving the breaking of all these commandments. That's why you have to worship your way out of idolatry. That's why we sang, and thank you, Jonathan and team, for leading us so helpfully in that hymn, The only thing that will strip us of the idolatry of control and comfort and pleasure and money and approval is a better idol, a a more satisfying, compelling vision, which is Jesus Christ. So the point is, idolatry is behind the breaking of all the other commandments. So commandments 2 through 9, brothers and sisters, are basically like smoke to a fire. They aren't the source. The source is commandment one. Don't focus on the smoke. Follow the trail of the smoke back to the fire and you will arrive at the altars of false gods. So sin and disobedience, as we were just reminded in the song that we sang, can't be fixed by changing our behavior. We've got to go back to the attitude that leads to the action, to the idol that fuels the idolatry. We worship our way into sin, we have to worship our way out of it. Worshiping something or someone else other than God is what leads us to sin. Therefore, to truly escape the harmful effects of sinful behavior, we've got to get back to what we worship. And the first commandment is all about God being our object of worship. So this morning then, we come to the second commandment. And this commandment has to do with the way we worship God. The first commandment is about giving our allegiance to something or someone other than the true God, and the second commandment is about trying to turn the true God into something else, trying to improve him by fashioning him in our image. So the first commandment has to do with worshiping the right God. The second commandment has to do with worshiping the right God in the right way. The first commandment has to do with who you worship, the second commandment has to do with how you worship. That's the difference between the two commandments. Whereas the first commandment forbids us with worshiping false gods, the second forbids us from worshiping the true God falsely. How we worship matters as much to God as who we worship. As Tim Hoke helpfully teaches the Heritage Christian School students, the first commandment, no false gods. The second commandment, no false worship. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So three points to our sermon this morning. We're going to look at what the commandment requires in worship. Second, why the commandment exists for us. And thirdly, how the commandment points to Christ. So number one, what the commandment requires in worship. God forbids the worship of himself by means of images. That's the language. Carved images. The implication is that it's a great sin to subject the incomprehensible, invisible God to human limitations and physical depictions. So this morning, under this first point, I want us to talk about four ways... Woo, Four ways. The second require. The, the, what what are four things the second commandment requires in worship? Four things under this first point. So the first point is what the commandment requires in worship. We're going to look at four aspects of that. Here's the first one. The second commandment requires that we define God the way that He has revealed Himself to be, not the way we would like Him to be. The second commandment and it, as to not make a carved image, what it's communicating is that we have to define God the way He's revealed Himself to be in the Bible, not the way we want Him to be by human nature. Have you ever heard someone use phrases like, well, my God would never. Or, my God is like... Or... I, would, I understand that's how you like to think of God, but I like to think of God as... Friends, that's a violation of the second commandment. This is to reduce God to something of your own making. You're making a carved image. We don't want to replace him We just want to make Him manageable. Remember how we talked last week about the ordinary God. We want to understand Him according to our own notions rather than according to the revelation in His Word. But friends, as we saw last week, God is who God is. Our opinions about what He should be or what we would like Him to be are entirely irrelevant. God has not given us the right to define God. He and he alone gets to define himself. This is what he said in Exodus 3 when he said, I am who I am to Moses, not I am who you want me to be. God gets to define himself. We aren't the creators of an imaginary God. We are the creatures of the true God. And if we are his creatures then our responsibility is to conform our conceptions of him to what he says about himself, not conform him to what we'd like him to be. I know that this kind of thinking is pretty offensive to to many people in our culture today. Some people in our culture might say, you mean I can't choose what I want to believe about God? And I want to say, yeah, you can, but you don't get to invent the true one. I mean, you can define God however you want, but you're just carving him in your own image. Someone might say, how dare you challenge my understanding of who my God is? But let, let, me, let me just step back from that. Let's, let's take this from a different perspective. Let's take it off the, the, the uh, debate table for a second. Think about um, if you were featured in a magazine story. We know the Kleins got featured in the Neighbors of Owensboro story of several months back. And imagine if Justin and Rebecca were interviewed for this magazine, uh, Neighbors of Owensboro, and the writer decided that they were going to write a story about the Kleins that imagined them as part-time astronauts who abuse beagles. Because that's the way they like to think of the Kleins. The story's not about their family, their love for the 5th Street neighborhood, their ministry to kids, nothing about that. It's about part-time astronauts who abuse beagles. What what would they think about that? What would they think about the person who wrote that story? They're saying, we're not astronauts. We're not even part-time astronauts. I don't think you can be a part-time astronaut. We're not part-time astronauts. You got our jobs wrong. And we have no interaction with beagles. We kind of like them. The story you told, or supposed to tell, was about our family and our ministry. And then the writer says, but that's not really how I like to think about you. I prefer to think about you differently. I prefer to you to think about part-time astronauts who abuse beagles. That's more sensationalist That's going to get ads sold. That's going to get people to read the story. It's not true, I know. But that's how I like to think about you. How would you feel about that? You'd be angry. Justifiably so. Because you've been misrepresented. And yet we do it to God all the time. And we don't expect Him to get upset about it. We just cast our version on him as a culture, redefine him completely, and say he's he's just probably going to check that box and be okay with it. No, we wouldn't be okay with it, and far more God isn't. We're made in his image. That's why we hate it. The second commandment is getting at this very issue. God is saying, even if you prefer to see me this way or that way, you're not allowed to remake me into what you want me to be. I am who I am. Get the story right. So that's the first way the commandment requires God. Uh, to be worshiped, that we define him the way he's revealed himself to be, not the way we want him to be. Second, the second commandment requires that we have an internal love for God and not just an external formal identification with him. The second commandment requires that we have an internal love for God and not just an external formal identification with him. We've already said that part of Second commandment breaking is refashioning the true God into the image we want him to be. We turn him into something we can manipulate or make him into a transaction. But 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 we, we can do this all the time. We you know, if God God, if I do that, you'll do that, right? If I do this, you'll do that. That's the way it works. It's transactional. So if, if I do my part, you'll do your part. I'll I'll pray this prayer, I'll follow this plan, I'll do this parenting method, and 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 then, God, you'll do your part, right? You'll save my kids, you'll bless my business, you'll... Friends, it's a violation of the second commandment when you hold God to stuff like that. God is God. He will not be manipulated by us, and he will not be controlled by us. We do not get to dictate to him the terms by which he interacts with us at all. He has the right to do with our lives whatever he wants to do. That's what it means to be saved by grace. We give up control. We give ourselves completely to him. He will not be captured. He will not be contained. He will not be assigned. He will not be managed by anyone or anything for any purpose. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to obey him. Brothers and sisters, our God will not be used. He hates to be used. Let me take us to a couple of passages. Look at Jeremiah chapter 7. Hold your finger in Exodus 20. We're coming back. Turn over to the prophet Jeremiah. If you're newer to the scriptures, just go to the right. Isaiah is a big book, and then you'll hit Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 4 through 10. Notice how God responds to how his people can sometimes be tempted to manipulate him through externalism. Jeremiah says, Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in his place, if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Verse 8, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We're delivered. In other words, I'm going to live my life like hell and think I'm going to heaven because I come to church. He says, Nope. Nope. You can't stand there and say, I worship false gods all week. I'm saved. Verse 11. Has this house, which is called by thy name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Does that help you see a little bit what Jesus was dealing with? When he said, My house shall be called a house of prayer and not a den of robbers? Because he walked in and he saw a bunch of compromised God followers. Idol worshipers who at the same time claimed that they were saved. That's why he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Amos chapter 5. Go to Amos. Amos chapter 5, and we're going to see a couple of different Amos 5, very small, so Amos chapter 5 gets at the same thing, verses 21 through 24. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them and the peace offerings of your fattened animals. I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In other words, these people were saying, but we're bringing you the stuff you've required, God. We're giving you the offerings. We're doing what we're supposed to be doing, but our heart does not belong to you. And so God says, quit singing worship songs. I don't want to listen anymore. So the second commandment requires that we have an internal love for God and not just an external formal identification with him. See, people identified formally with carved idols. They just said, okay, if I keep this idol in my house, this idol will bless me. But see, I can live like the devil, but as long as I got the idol in there, it's going to bless. See, it's just an external, formal identification with something rather than a heart that loves the Lord. You know what it's like when you come out of a movie theater? If you've been in a movie theater a long time, you know the lights from the outside hurt, hurt your eyes to the point where you feel like you need to shield them. But why is that the case? Why is that the case? Because your eyes are used to the darkness. And it hurts at first to walk out into the sunlight, but once you stay in the light, your eyes refocus, and you're able to see the glory and wonder of it. Brothers and sisters, I know this is, these are hard things for us to hear, but let us let it be like walking out of a movie theater. It's like, ooh, that stings a little bit. That, that hurts. That, God, I want to love you. I, I don't want to just do this external, formal thing. I want to I love you from my heart. And, and listen, don't shield your eyes from what God's revealed himself to be. And don't, don't shield yourself from conviction. Don't turn away from the truth his word exposes. Live in the light you were created for. Let your eyes adjust. And over time, we'll be so, so thankful as we have the darkness weeded out of us. So those are two ways, first two ways that the the, the commandment requires, or the first two things that the, the commandment requires of us, that we not define God the way we want and that we not just have an external attachment to him. Number three, the second commandment requires that we worship God in the way that he has commanded, in the way that he has commanded. See, oftentimes, when some of us may not even be familiar with this, but God has told us how he wants to be worshiped he doesn't leave the most central aspect of, of, of our lives as image-bearing worshipers to figure out for ourselves. We worship God in the way we choose rather than, rather than just the way we think. Sorry, I said that wrong. We worship him not in the way we choose, but rather in the way that he commands. Can I give you the words of our beloved Pastor Ted? Here's what he wrote. A long time ago, well, several years ago, but it stuck with me and I've kept it ever since. God alone determines how He must be worshiped. Regarding the elements of worship, God does not invite our suggestions or imagination. The God appointed elements of worship are preaching, reading scripture, singing, praying, and observing the ordinances. In corporate worship, we must never do what God forbids. Such offerings He views as strange fire, wicked, and unacceptable. Regarding circumstances, that is how we do the worship he has commanded, service order, musical instruments, etc., the church may do whatever is biblical, wise, and helpful. So here's what regulates true worship. Do what God requires, avoid what he forbids, enjoy what he allows. It's that simple. And it is. That's it. Do what God requires, avoid what he forbids, and enjoy what he allows. So, what does he require when we gather together in corporate worship? We know worship exists beyond what we do here corporately. In fact, the New Testament emphasis of worship is way more in terms of individual lifestyle of worship rather than corporate worship. But that's not to say that corporate worship is not vital and important. It is. It was huge to God under the old covenant, it's huge to God under the new covenant. So, what does he require? Well, the things we strive to be faithful to do every Sunday. Reading God's Word together publicly, 1 Timothy 4.13. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. We do that every Sunday. We have Scripture read publicly. Before the sermon, at the beginning of the service, at the end of the service. Preaching the whole counsel of God, not just the parts we like. Acts 20, verse 27, Paul said that he did not shrink from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. One of the reason we try to walk through books of the Bible is because we get confronted with stuff we would normally skip over. It's not me setting the agenda. It's not your pastor setting the agenda. We're trying to let God set the agenda. That doesn't mean that topical sermons are not appropriate from time to time. Of course they are. You all know that. But preaching the whole counsel of God requires us to preach through books of the Bible. Otherwise, we won't ever get through the whole counsel of God. Singing the gospel together in response to who God is and what he's done for us, what our worship team does so faithfully and helpfully week in and week out. Colossians 3.16, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord as we gather together. Praying to God as adopted sons and daughters through the gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 4 encourages us to be devoted to prayer in our public gatherings, As so does Acts chapter 2. It says they were devoted to the corporate prayers of the church. So we devote ourselves to that, and we did that this morning as we pray together corporately. Giving our tithes and offerings in response to the gospel for the furtherance of the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 16, one and 2. Every week as we prosper, We are to gather together. And as part of that first day of the week gathering on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, to celebrate the resurrection, we give our tithes and offerings to Him. And then finally, symbolizing the gospel as it's displayed in the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. So, those sorts of things. We read the Bible, we preach the Bible. We try to sing the Bible, we pray the Bible, we give for the furtherance of the gospel, and we symbolize the gospel in the Lord's Supper and baptism. That's what God told us to do. That's the things that he has required us to do in worship. So the forms of that can take different forms. Doesn't have to be a 45-minute sermon behind this. Doesn't have to be that way. But the preaching of the word has to be there. It doesn't, the, the God is not commanding how long the scripture should be or what scriptures that just that scripture be there. So we get, there's flexibility there in how we apply it. Praise God. He's not, he's not rigid. He didn't drop a big lectionary from the sky and said, all right, week by week, there you go. That's what you do. No, he's given us principles and commands that he's outlined. He said, these things have to be there. Now work them out in the way that's most helpful and edifying in your context, but do those things. That's how I want to be approached. And then, fourthly and finally, the second commandment requires a word-centered worship. A word-centered worship. Let's go back to Acts chapter 20 and see this again. Note, I, I just want you to notice something that maybe in reading, reading the text through, and, and I don't think I, I fully appreciated that, this until doing some more study this week and thinking through this, Look at verse 4 again. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that's in the heaven above or that's on the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. So what he's advocating for is that as part of our worship, we don't create things we can look at and bow down to and serve. Now, now, brothers and sisters, we live in a very visual age, right? This is the age of the eye. It's not the age of the ear. Our time is a time where the exchange of ideas and the transfer of messages is visual rather than verbal. Publication of books is going down. YouTube videos is going up. We want to see it, tell me, I don't want to read it. Brothers and sisters, there's a place for visual. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But we need to be very careful about that. Because God gave us a book. Okay, this is, I didn't choose, this is how he chose. A big book. A pretty big book. And so, the way he wants to be related to is through word. Word. Not visual media. But, but and, and, and we... We, we engage in visual media to the absence of word transmission to our eventual starvation, not our ultimate satisfaction. Listen, why did God not reveal himself in a physical form here? He didn't do that. He says in verse 1, and God spoke all these words. He did not reveal himself in a physical form. Now, I'm not talking about what he did At the burning bush when he manifested himself in fire. That's a that's a manifestation. That's not that's a different thing. That's a theophany, it's not but God didn't come down in like the form of an old man, right, and say with a long beard, Gandalf coming down off Sinai, which is the way the you know all the old children's Bibles used to picture God, right? Coming down and here I am and I speak like this, and now look at me. No, he didn't do it that way, he just spoke verbally, audibly. Now, why did he not do that? Well, God told us, hold your finger in Exodus, go to Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. God tells us here why he did not come down in the form of anything. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 11. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. This is talking about Sinai, verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice, verse 13. And he declared to you his covenant, this is the ten words, which he commanded you to perform. That is the ten commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you were going over to possess. Look at verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. "...the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that's on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that's in the water under the earth. Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven." God specifically says I didn't come down in the form in a form on purpose. On purpose. <laughs> it wasn't by accident. It was on purpose. God knew that the visual eventually displaces the verbal and once we see we no longer want to hear. So as a church brothers and sisters, we make no apology for being word centered. And here's why: faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans ten seventeen. Listen, the Jesus film that many people have seen. Okay, not not debating the value of that, but I'm saying that people get saved by what they hear, not by what they see in that movie. They are hearing the gospel of Luke or the gospel of Mark or Matthew unpacked as those words. It's not the visual. It's not the visual. Because faith, God says it, where does faith come from? We want faith, right? Faith is what saves. Well, where does faith come from? By hearing. And by and where does hearing come from? The word of Christ. So faith is tied to words, not images. Faith's the opposite of images, right? We see. We don't seeing it, God's saying, listen, seeing is not believing, believing is seeing. Okay, that's, what, that's, that's the way God operates. Believing is how you see, not see and then you'll believe. Seeing never results in faith. In fact, when, when remember when Jesus was um, confronted, with sharing about the story of the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man was in flames and in hell and saying, oh, I, I wish I wouldn't have come here. Please go and, and show them that this is, this is horrific and do many miracles and, and do all that stuff so that they won't come to this terrible place. And he says... No, I'm not going to do that. Why? They have the law and the prophets. They have Moses. Listen to them. Because if they won't listen to that, they won't be convinced if somebody rises from the dead. Because seeing is not believing. Listen, people are not going to get converted if we have a resurrection in here one day. Say we, I mean, literally, we roll somebody in here and somebody gets up from the dead. You say, wow, that'll convince them. No, it won't. Maybe for four weeks. Maybe for four, but I mean... Jesus said it wouldn't. It wouldn't. I mean, how many people saw his miracles and didn't believe him? Over and over and over again. And he had 120 followers when he died. Some church growth strategy. Why didn't more people believe? Because faith doesn't come by seeing. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. So we're not going to make any apologies for that. This is how God designed it, because that's how he's chosen to reveal himself. Christian worship is meant to be wordy and not a breathtaking visual display. It's not meant to be like, "Woo, CGI up in here. If we can get CGI, like, shouldn't we just do that CGI Bible, right, and just show that every Sunday? I mean, that would make it really impactful. No, it wouldn't it would stimulate our senses and it would make us real excited for a moment and we'd get the fog machines out and get all that going it's not going to it's not going to result in conversion it's not going to result in people being built up in the faith John 4:24 God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him with stunning visual displays right no those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth right? That's how we worship. We worship in spirit. We worship a God we can't see with people we can. (laughs) That's how it works. We worship by faith according to his word. This commandment is not against artistry, brothers and sisters. Some of you have beautiful gifts of creativity and artistry. Praise God. God's going to command his people later on to get all the artists together to build the tabernacle. You think God's against visuals? No. He loves visuals. He loves art. But he doesn't like it to be created in his image for the purpose of worship. That's what, it's, that's what's, that's what he's against. When, we, when it's time to build the tabernacle, God sends his spirit upon the Israelites for artistic purposes. But what the second commandment rules out is not making things, but making things to serve as objects of worship. God loves artistry, but not idolatry. And there is a difference. Kevin DeYoung says, what God prohibits is infusing any object with spiritual spiritual efficacy as if man-made artifacts can bring us closer to God, represent God, or establish communion with God. That's what it's about. Now, very quickly, we're going to move through the last two points. I should have told you that up front, so don't get scared. That was the first point, was the main point. What does God require in worship? We talked about those four things. Now, let's move on to point number two and three quickly. Point number two, why the commandment exists for us. Look at verse 5 of Exodus 20. This is why God is giving the command. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." God demands to be rightly represented in worship because God is jealous for our worship. This jealousy is not sinful. I I know that we have a hard time, at least I do, I have a hard time of thinking of jealousy as not sinful because we almost always associate it with ungodly jealousy, like covetousness, which is the 10th commandment. That's what we equate jealousy with. But listen, brothers and sisters, at least 14 times in the Old Testament and lots of other parts of Scripture, God is called a jealous God, and he is absolutely holy and righteous to do so. There is a holy kind of jealousy that is entirely appropriate, both for God and for us. We just mishandle it and fumble it a lot because we're sinners. But God, in his jealousy, is always righteous. And this jealousy is the jealousy of a lover for his beloved. That's the kind of jealousy we're talking about here. It's rooted in his love for his glory, and it's rooted in his love for us. God knows that only when we worship him for true for who he really is, will he be adequately glorified and we be ultimately satisfied. That's why he's jealous. He's jealous for your joy and he's jealous for his glory, which as John Piper has so helpfully taught us. Those are not at odds with one another. And we see it right here in the second commandment. God is jealous to be accurately represented because he wants to be glorified and he wants us to be fully satisfied. So let's talk about each one of those. Because God wants to be glorified and for that that glory to bring us joy, He forbids us from worshiping a figment of our imagination. Why? First of all, because of His love for His glory. Listen, to worship the right God, or Ashari, to worship the right God in the wrong way or to worship the wrong God altogether is to testify to a wrong God. God does not want to be born false witness against. Okay? He does not want to be lied about. He wants to be represented accurately. And through wrong worship, we give testimony to a wrong God. So we must not bear false witness against God's character, and images do that. No image can capture the invisible God. Every image limits to what that image portrays. And that's why God says, "Get the Im- don't image me. Don't show me in an image. All right, images degrade his glory. Romans chapter 1, verse 24 and 25 explain this, that when people worship the created things rather than the creator who is God over all, blessed forever. So that's the first reason. It's rooted in love for his glory, but it's rooted also in love for us as his people. God's jealousy for us is a holy jealousy. Is It is entirely appropriate. His commitment to us is total, and his love is exclusive, passionate, and intense. He loves you so much, and he wants you to be exclusively devoted to who he really is. Husband, don't you want your wife to know the real you? Wife, don't you want your husband to know the real you? you friend don't you want your friend to know the real you the real you right that's part of love that's part of friendship and that's the way it is with god one writer said godly jealousy is not the insecure insane and possessive human jealousy that we often interpret this word to mean rather it is an intensely caring devotion to the object of his love like a mother's jealous protection of her children this form of jealousy should give us security. God loves us too much to not be jealous. Christopher Wright says, A God who is not jealous is a God who is not loving. A non-jealous God would be as contemptible as a husband who didn't care whether or not his wife was faithful. But God's not that. He wants us, and he will have us. He wants us because he loves us. And notice quickly the consequences here. The consequences of failing to to do this. First of all, he says, he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, this, this is saying that this sin has generational impact. Now, brothers and sisters, this does not mean that there is some generational hex or some generational curse placed upon people who disobeyed this command if that were the case i wouldn't be saved i mean and most like think about it: how many of you some of you who grew up in non-christian homes would you would have no reason to be saved because obviously you know the generational hex came down and you're not a believer no it that's not the case it does not mean that a righteous child it also does not mean that a righteous child will be punished for the sins of this wicked father see ezekiel eighteen twenty. Each person is punished for their own sins. But, brothers and sisters, this warning also does not deny individual responsibility as it is not just the fathers who hate God, but also the children. Did you see that, what it said? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children who hate me. So the children hate, the, hate, the God, hate God, and so do the fathers. God is not punishing the innocent. He's punishing the guilty. They're all guilty. The children are hating God. The father is hating God. People who struggle with the fairness of this commandment assume that although the father is guilty, the children are innocent. That's not what the text says. It says the children are guilty. The children hate God as much as the father did. Therefore, it's just and fair for God to punish both for their sin. This, While it doesn't teach that there's some sort of generational hex or curse, it does underscore the fact that examples matter, and what we worship gets passed on. Oftentimes, your children will worship what you worship. Ordinarily, not always. And then, but look at the good news in verse 6. But showing, showing steadfast love to thousands. Thousands, literally to the thousandth generation. This is a God who's lavish in his mercy. You see, justice, as has been said, is his strange work, third and fourth generation. Mercy, steadfast love goes to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. In other words, it's incentivizing the people saying, Worship God and serve him only. It will be a great blessing to you and a great blessing to your family. You have no idea. And brothers and sisters, this points us to Christ. This distinction between iniquity of the fathers and steadfast love being shown to thousands, how can that be possible? It can only be ha- happen and be possible because people get changed. Right? And how do people get changed? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. We read about this with Kanye West this very week. Pretty cool. Let's pray for him. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There it is. That, what's the hope for turning from idols? Jesus. Jesus. Listen. God and God alone determines how he should be worshipped. And you know why the reason why God forbids the creation of images? Because he's already got one. Jesus Christ, the image of God. We don't need to create images. He got one himself. Listen, we were created in God's image first. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. And we blew it. We blew it in Adam in our responsibility, which was to exercise dominion over the earth, to, to 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 have babies and raise them up in the in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and do all that, but we failed. And as a result of sin, the image of God in us is not removed (Genesis five one and James three nine, but it is distorted. We are born worshiping created things instead of the Creator, and it isn't that much different than when it was back it then. People used to carry their idols back then in their pockets to bless them. We do the same today. Uh, People used to gather their families around an altar in their home to interact with it. We got a big glowing screen on most of our walls. We do the same thing. Not to say that smartphones and television are bad. You guys know that. People used to gather in large public meeting areas to worship the idols. We call it arenas and stadiums where people dress like animals and hold their hands up, and slap, woo! Praise God! That are down there. Right? Sports are great too. But listen, you don't get the point. We are born from the womb, worshipers, image of God has not been taken away, but God sent another image into the world to repair what Adam did. Jesus Christ, Hebrews 1.3, he's the exact representation of His glory. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. Jesus Christ is the image of God. God reveals Himself in words because pictures and images can never contain Him. Pictures and images conceal more than they reveal. But thankfully, there is one place where you can see a picture of God. Christ. You see in Him the image of the invisible God. We don't need statues or pictures or icons because we've got one. We've got one. Colossians 1 chapter 1 verse 15 Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation and brothers and sisters the carved images fall away in light of the true image and with this savior we are being made perfect believers as are being restored into the image of God Romans chapter 8 verse 29 2 Corinthians 3:18 Colossians 3, 9 and 10 Ephesians 4:22 to 24 all tell us that as believers the image of God is being restored in us as we're being sanctified and made more holy. We do not make image of God of, of God because he's making images of himself in us as united to the true image, Jesus Christ. And this renewal is incomplete in this lifetime. But brothers and sisters, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 48 and 49 and 1 John 3, 2, when we see him, we're going to be like him we will be fully restored into the image of God. And it's an, ultimately, it's an ultimate future blessing and reality for all those who are in Christ. Praise his name. Praise his name that he's given us his own image and by his grace is restoring that image in us as his children. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful to you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so thankful that you didn't leave us in our sin, but that you sent the image of god the lord jesus christ the eternal son of god to take upon human flesh to become truly and fully god and truly and fully man or t- to become fully man and as and 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 execute obedience in our place never to worship idols jesus you only worshiped god and we you, we we know you did that for all those who would trust in you so we thank you that you did that for us. We thank you that we are saved and transformed, not by works, but by trusting completely in what you have done, and that it's only through a sight of peerless worth that we will be weaned off the idols of the earth. Do that now, even as we rise to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.